How you guys doing? All right, like Matthew said, my name's Jake. I'm one of the pastors, part of this church, uh, one church in two locations, and I'm glad to be up with you. I just got a reminder, a friendly reminder of my last time with you, which wasn't that long ago, but yesterday in the, in the mail I got a picture of my car going down 380 uh, on my way home. Uh, we were trying to get back to go to the 11 o'clock service down in Cedar Rapids with my family, and uh, they told me I was going too fast. So that was uh, a happy reminder. Uh, you guys, this is one, this may be... Sh- it's not me. This is really shallow. But as far as like churches that set up, I've been to a lot. You have the most comfortable chairs, uh, the like the like folding chairs. And I, I'm reminded of that because I was telling Matthew and Richard, I just did a wedding and they had like the little white wooden folding chairs that a guy like me is like, I don't know if I should sit down in those. So the whole time I'm like doing a wall sit because I don't want to break this. My thighs were just killing me. Uh, so I was just super appreciative of your chairs. Uh, so let's, uh, at that deep sediment, let's get to it. Grab your Bibles. We are in the book of Revelation. We're going to be here for a while. We're going to get chapters 2 and 3. And just as a, a friendly uh, upfront comment, I, it, it, today could have been a good day to wear your work boots because uh, I'm coming and there may be some toe stop a little bit, but it's in love and there's some just important things that we need to address that do get addressed to these these letters to these seven churches that are covered in Revelations chapter 2 and 3. Uh, and John, if you remember in chapter 1, he kind of states his audience. It's to the church, to the seven churches in Asia. It's like modern day Turkey. Uh, that's his audience and they're going through some, some tough times, some persecution. It was a difficult time to be uh, a Christian. And he's going to now specifically address each one of these churches uh, and say something to us as well. Uh, so these are letters to these churches within the letter of Revelation. Now, have you ever wanted to write a letter to a church? Maybe you have. Maybe we've received it. I don't know. Maybe it was a positive letter. Uh, maybe it was encouraging. Maybe we were frustrated. Maybe you had some concerns and you wanted to vent and you got some stuff off your chest. But there are a lot of people that have stories of church hurt, uh, church frustration, where you look at church like this is unacceptable or why do they do this or why did they let this happen or how could they treat somebody like this or why can't we get ch- kids check-in done faster like whatever it may be like you you see something and you're frustrated and you want to vent about it you want to deal with it and a lot of people have those kind of stories and there's no such thing as a perfect church uh, if there was and you joined it you'd ruin it okay uh, but there's no such thing as a perfect church and we tell all our people that go through any assimilation into Veritas, uh, we promise we will disappoint you. If you stick around long enough, you will see our imperfections. You will see that this is a church led by sinners, uh, that we all have our own struggles and we do, don't do things perfectly all the time. We just want to get that up front right away. If you stick around, I promise you, we will let you down. We will disappoint you. But what makes a good church? Because just because there's no perfect church doesn't mean we shouldn't strive to be a good church. And what makes a good church? Or what makes a bad church? Or what makes complaints justifiable? Like if, if something is happening, you're like, I sure hope somebody does say something because that's not okay. Like we should deal with that. Or wouldn't do complaints uh, are more like, yeah, I just think you're focused on the wrong things. Or that's not that big a deal. Or just let it go. And, and how do we tell that? What, what is a good church? And last summer, uh, if you get on our website and you look back at our teaching, we did a series where we looked at each one of these churches individually. 
Because there's some specific things being said to each church. We're not going to do that today. You can go back and do a deeper dive into each church. Uh, Today we're going to look at the section as a whole. Um, What what is John saying to all seven of these churches? Because there's a unique message uh, or or a theme or or a general message that we want to see when we look at it as a whole. And there's something there for us to see. So seven churches get addressed. Um, Like I said, it's a letter within, or letters within a letter. So the letter of Revelation went out to all seven churches, and in the letter, each of the seven churches gets addressed specifically, but also every church was to read the letter to all the other churches. This wasn't like for Ephesus, it's just for Ephesus. The letter to Ephesus was read by all the other churches as well. So it was meant to be for for everybody, and it circulated in order. Like if you kind of follow uh, each church, it's like follows a travel the way, way somebody would travel. Um, So if we got a letter and it says to the church in Iowa City, to the church in Cedar Rapids, to the church in Urbana, to the church in Waterloo, you'd be like, oh, they're going up 380. Like, I get that. Like, this was kind of followed a route and addressed churches along the way. And each letter starts out to the angel of the church at, and then it lists the church. And I, uh, was Michael up here last week? Michael's up here last week? Yeah. Where uh, he addressed that when the, when the author uses the word angel, Literally, it means messenger. So there's some debate on whether there's, this is addressing like a literal angel that's over a church uh, or like a specific leader that has oversight over that church. And, and whatever way you fall, it doesn't change the meaning of the text by any means. So there's some speculation on this. Personally, I told the people last week, like, I would like to believe that it's addressing a literal angel. Because I just think that would be cool if we had like an angel for Veritas Church. And I could just imagine his name's Bert. He wears flip-flops, right? Loves high fives. Uh, Like, what would our angel be like? So we can dive into that, and that's fun to talk about. And there's some other passages that may lead us to think like, oh, that could be the case. Not just one angel, but but a lot of angels. And you can get into like, do people have guardian angels? And what's about that? Uh, We're going to do a podcast addressing some of those kind of weirder things about angels and demons and spiritual warfare. So uh, if you get into our equipping podcast, that's going to be coming out soon. Now, out of the seven churches that get addressed, two of them are doing great. Like only positive things are said to them. There's just encouragement. But five get quite a rebuke. Um, Five are not doing so hot and they get challenged um, a lot. And there is a message in the whole. So it's like, okay, these, I'm addressing the seven churches, but I'm addressing every church when I address the seven churches. Uh, and, and I think Michael brought it last week too. Like numbers mean something in scripture. And the number of seven is a number of fullness or the number of completion. So these seven churches, he's talking about the church. So I'm talking about these churches, but I'm also saying this is a kind of a, a report on the church, the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, and there's a message the overarching message is as a whole, the Christian church is not in a good condition. There's a lot of compromise. There's a lot of sin creeping in. Um, there's a lot of false teaching. There's an embracing of sexual morality. Like there's a critique. There's a big critique on the Christian church as a whole. And healthy churches are in the minority. Only two of them out of the seven. So I say, okay, let's get a kind of a grade on how the church of Jesus Christ is doing right now. It's like, not well. 
We've got some things to address. There's some problems. There's compromise happening. And a, and a healthy church is in the minority. And it's not just that the world is bad. Because we kind of looked at that in the first couple weeks of like, this is a tough place to be a Christian. There's a lot of corruption. They're living in a pagan culture. There's persecution happening. Like, that's out there. And it's, it's not just when we get into these letters. It's like, the problem is not just out there. The problem is that the problem out there has creeped in here. And the worldly struggles of sin are now starting to show themselves in the church. And that's what John is addressing. So I think a natural question as we come to this is, how are we doing? How are we doing as a church? Are we a good church? And what determines that? Like, what, what determines that, yeah, you're a good church? Is it the quality of music? Is it the facility that you meet in? Is it the programs that you offer? Is it the bank account? Like, none of those things get addressed. You know, it's really interesting. I think it's really important for you guys to know that out of the, the five or the seven churches that get addressed, the two that were doing good, that the only encouraging things that were said to them were the smallest, least influential of all the churches. Because sometimes we look at size. It's like, well, we're, we're good if we're big. But that's not the case. The, the, the churches that were doing the best were the smallest, least influential of all the seven churches. And those were the ones where God was like, great job, keep it up. So, so maybe a better question for us to ask ourselves is, in God's eyes, what makes a good church? Because isn't that what we want? I mean, it doesn't matter if, if people from the outside look at Veritas and be like, such an awesome church. You guys are doing great things. You're blowing up. You're, you're planting campuses. This is great. But God looks at us and he's like, yeah, I'll spit you out of my mouth. That would not be a good place for us to be. Nor on the flip side, if the world is looking at us and you guys, you guys are a bunch of bigots and pagan or not pagans, that wouldn't fit. Like, you, you know, ignorant people and they just they don't think very highly of us. But God is looking at us saying like, great job. Keep it up. You're making me proud. Stay faithful. Like, that's what we want. So in God's eyes, and that's what we're going to see when these churches get addressed, in God's eyes, what makes a good church? So let's look at what Christ praises in these letters. Now, I'm not going to read chapters 2 through 3 all together, but we're going to look at pretty much uh, every verse in these, uh, in these two chapters because there's a pattern to all the letters uh, that we'll see, and we're going to jump from letter to letter. But let's look at each of these letters to the churches of what Christ praises. He starting uh, this letter to Ephesus. It says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Or a little further down, he says this in a positive way. Yet you, this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, <clears throat> which I also hate. Now, some of you may be like, that doesn't sound like Jesus, except it is, right? Because it's like, here's what he's saying. Hey, we hate the same people. So we got that going for us. So he's applauding them for that. Then you go down to Smyrna. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Now that he, he's commending them. He's saying, I know the difficult situation you're in, and I know your financial situation and your struggle there, but you're rich. And he's not talking materially. He's saying, uh, but, but you have a wealth of faith that is showing itself. Or you go down to Pergamum, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. He's like, I know your struggle. I know where you live. Boy, that's a tough place to follow me. I, I see you. 
I see your faithfulness. Even when when a brother's getting killed for following me, like you didn't back down. Like this is, he's applauding them for that. Where he says this, I know your works, your love and your faith and your service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. I see your compassion. I see how you serve and you're just kind of, you keep doing more. Way to go. Or... I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And each one of these, you see, like, what is it that Christ is praising about the church? What is it that makes Jesus excited when he looks at his church? What What do you see here? Well, it's faithfulness. That's what he's excited about. Faithfulness. You guys are in difficult situations. You're facing struggle. You're facing financial hardship. You're facing persecution. You're facing opposition. You're facing all these things. And yet you stay faithful to me. You haven't abandoned. Like you, you, you continue to be faithful. So listen to this. The quality of the church is in the faithfulness of its people. It's not in the quality of the stage. It's not in the budget. It's not in the programs. The quality of a church comes down to the faithfulness of its people. Like these people are faithful to Jesus Christ. That's what is pleasing to God when he looks at his church. All right, well, let's, let's look at what he critiques then. So what, when he looks at these churches, what, what is he critiquing? We're going to work through each church again, so we're jumping around a little bit. But the first one in Ephesus, he says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. It's like you lost your first love. Like, yeah, your doctrine's great, but you don't really love Jesus. You know about Jesus, but, but you've lost this, this love. Uh, Smyrna's doing great. He doesn't critique them. Pergamum, you go down there. He says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have, you who hold, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We go to Thyatira. He says this, but I have this against you. That you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. So you kind of see a, a theme or a problem reoccurring there. Jump over to Sardis. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. We go over to the Laodicea. It says, I know your works. <clears throat> you are neither cold nor hot. Would, you, would that you were either cold or hot? Because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. There's some harsh words. There's, a, there's some heavy critique coming from Jesus. And you, you might be like, that doesn't sound like my Jesus. My Jesus just says sweet, nice things and draws flowers. Like, no, that's, that's Jesus. Like, he is critiquing his church and he has heavy, you know, serious things to say to his church. Now, what is the common thread through all of these critiques that you see to every church? Compromise. You have compromising people. You have been so influenced by the world around you, you're starting to look more and more like the world around you. You're, you're giving in. You're caving. You're, you're compromising. You're tolerating things you shouldn't tolerate. You're going along with things you shouldn't go along with. Like, this is the critique that Jesus gives to his church. They're compromising. You may be like, well, how does that happen? Because that's what we want to avoid. So if that's what we want to avoid, let's look, well, how does it happen in here? 
And there's some references uh, to Old Testament stories that kind of give us a better vantage point or perspective at the problem that these churches are facing. So one, he addresses that uh, you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Now, I don't know if we're having any new babies, any baby girls. I would stay away from the name Jezebel. Just a friendly piece of advice. Uh, Notorious character uh, in the Old Testament for kind of leading Israel astray. You can read about her uh, in 1 Kings 16 and on in the the preceding chapters. But she married, she's a a princess from from another land who married uh, King Ahab, who's a king in Israel. Uh, who was not a good guy, but, but his wife, Jezebel, really uh, made the nation of Israel take a turn in the wrong direction. Uh, she brought in Baal worship or pagan worship. She eventually ordered the execution of all the prophets of Israel, and she introduces uh, idol or pagan worship to the Israelites. And it's like, okay, what does this example mean then? Because they would, they would hear this and be like, oh, I know that story. And he's saying, yeah, you know that story? That's this. That story is what you're dealing with. So what's the story telling? It's like you tolerate that woman Jezebel. What is he saying? Like, hey, this corruption that you're dealing with, it's not going to come through some invading army. It's like it's not Rome that you need to be too worried about. Like, that's, not, that's not the problem here. The problem is, like, it's not this invading army. No, 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 that's not the problem. Like corruption, it's you marry it. You fall in love with it. You build a relationship with it. Like the, it just kind of gets in the back door. And this is how it kind of uh, introduces new things to you in a friendly way. Like this isn't an enemy. Like you married her. Like it's like this is the compromise that's happening. Like, oh, I, I get it. Because it's easy to like look out. It's like those are the bad guys. Those are those evil people. It's like, no, no, no. Like you actually married it. It's the things that you love that's the problem. Or the, the other Old Testament reference was... Um, uh, some of you hold, this is to Pergamum, he says, some of you hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Uh, you guys know the story of Balaam and Balak? You, it's, you don't feel like you're judged here. Anybody know that story? How about this one? Does anybody know the story of Balaam and his donkey? Okay, now you're with me. So Balaam had this donkey um, where... Uh, he, well, let me just back up and give you the whole story, because that story is a part of the story. But Balak was the king of Moab, uh, and he was freaking out a little bit about the Israelites coming into the land, because they're kicking butt, and they're like, they're, just, they're taking no prisoners, right? They're, they're dominating. So he's like, well, I'm in trouble then. So he reaches out to Balaam and says, you've got to curse these Israelites. Like, I'm in danger here. You've got to curse them. He's like, I can't. Like, he's, I can't curse the Israelites. He's like, God won't let me. That's, I'm not going to do it. Um, in fact, at one point, he's walking along uh, the road with the donkey. This is the donkey story. And his donkey just stops. It won't go any further. Well, he's frustrated, uh, so he starts whipping the donkey. Uh, but the reason the donkey won't go any further is because the donkey sees, standing in the road, the angel of the Lord with the sword <laughs> drawn. So it's like, yeah, if you saw that too, you'd probably stop. Uh, well, Balaam doesn't see it. So he's like whipping the donkey like, let's go, you know, go. And the, don- the Lord opens the mouth of the donkey. This would be wild. And the donkey turns to him and is like, why are you whipping me? Right? Have I not been a faithful steed? Have I not like carried you everywhere you need to go? Like, why are you tr- not trusting me now? That would freak you out. Right? Can you imagine at home watching TV, your dog laying on the floor, right? And you start watching something you shouldn't watch. And that dog kind of looks up at you and goes, you call yourself a Christian, huh? 
that would freak you out, right? This is the moment in Balaam, he's like, where he gets uh, kind of rebuked by his animal. So anyways, Balak, the king of Moab, uh, is asking Balaam to curse the Israelites on his behalf, and he won't do it. But he does give him advice on how to deal with them. Um, he, he does give him counsel. In fact, here in the passage, it says that uh, teaching of, who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before. It's like, you can't invade them, but I'll tell you how to trip them up. I'll tell you how to put a stumbling block in front of them. So again, this church knows the story of the Old Testament. They hear this like, this is your problem. This is what you're dealing with. And what he told Balak on how to destroy the Israelites is, here's what you do. You just introduce some idolatry. You're not going to get them to stop worshiping God. Don't, don't try that. But if you can get them to start worshiping other gods along with the worship of God. If you can introduce some sexual immorality. Their God hates that. Just kind of introduce a little bit of this. And just introduce a little bit of this. And it'll be like a stumbling block for them. It'll anger their God and he will turn against them. Like this is the advice that Balaam gives Balak and how to get them. Guys, that's how it happens. That's how it happens. Like it just kind of sneaks in. Like you think of Genesis 3. Satan didn't come to Eve and be like, you know, Forget God. Let's just do this. Let's rebel. That's not what he did. He's like, did God really say that? Are you really going to die? Like, it's just, it's just sneaky. It's just a little compromise. It's just embracing something contrary to the God. Like, I'm not asking you to stop believing in God. That's ridiculous. Just, just embrace this a little. Like, he's saying, this is how the corruption happens. This is the problem that Christ sees when he looks at his church. And each one of these cities had a very, very pagan culture that they were in. And they felt a tremendous amount of pressure to worship the gods of their culture, to fit in into their culture. It's where they lived. It's how they function. And church, I'm telling you, just like each one of these cities, we will be expected, pressured, and lured to worship the gods of our culture. Like, what do you mean the gods of our culture? What are the gods of our culture? They're the hardest to see. Because they're the ones we interact with every day. And it's, it's hardest to see our own idols. Because we, we deal with it all the time. It's the air we breathe. It's the water we swim in. We, it's around us all the time. And it just kind of wiggles in and sneaks in the back door. Uh, it's like a stumbling block you didn't see until you trip over it. It's like someone you marry. <laughs> and you just kind of build a relationship with it. It's sneaky. So what are the idols that are hardest for us to see? Because, guys, listen, it's easy for me to get up here and to preach in an evangelical Baptist church about uh, homosexuality or or the transgender craze going on in our world. But what about all the movies and shows you watch that are full of nudity? And I I get it. I mean, you're saying, well, Jake, that's pretty much every show nowadays. (laughs) And I get it. I get it. The culture, our culture will have its gods. But what about when everybody in the church is watching those same shows? Or what about the love of money and materialism? I mean, we live in a culture where it's like you just got to have it. You got to get the new iPhone. You got to get the new Jordans. You got to get the new kicks. You got to get the new house. You got to get the new car. You got to get that vacation. You just got to get it. You got to get it. You got to get it. And we're just like so passionate about consuming. And I get it. The culture has its gods. But what about when everybody in the church seems to be climbing that same ladder? 
Have you ever heard a church ever talk about gluttony? I mean, we live in a world where the rest of the world knows that we have American-sized portions. Right? And we tend to think that a pizza can fix a bad day. And I get it. The culture has its gods. But what about when everybody in the church thinks and functions that same way? What about vanity? Can we talk about vanity? Have you ever heard a church talk about vanity, even though it's all over in Scripture? I mean, we live in a world where we have websites about ourselves. Let me just tell everybody what I did today and what I wore today and what I ate today, what I'm doing. It's like, well, who cares? But we do it. Like, we, we have every, it's just about ourselves and a self-promotion. The health craze in our culture is ridiculous. And they're just saying the crazy stuff out loud now. Here's how you lift your butt. Here's how you flatten your stomach. Here's how you broaden your shoulders. Like, they just say it. Like, it's just how it is. Like, seriously, why are you so concerned about how your butt looks in those jeans? Do you want people to look at your butt? Why? Or, or here's one. When you post pictures about yourself or of yourself, do you use filters? Why? Why do you post so many pictures about yourself? When you do good things, do you post it on social media for everybody to see? As if it's some kind of good example, even though I'm pretty sure in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus specifically said not to do that. Why? I get it. Everybody does it. Everybody does it. I get it. The culture has its gods. But what about when everybody in the church is doing it? You see how it kind of creeps in and the church starts looking like the world and you can't really tell a difference? That's what's being addressed here. How about one more, just because maybe I haven't offended everybody yet. (laughs) Do you worship at the altar of youth sports? I mean, we live in a culture where it's like the commitment and the travel and the money and the passion behind, you know, sixth grade soccer is just crazy. Like you're just consuming. And there used to be a time in our culture not that long ago when it was like Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings. Those are kind of like, no, don't do that. But now, it's amazing how full the parking lot is on the ball diamond on a Sunday morning. And I get it. In our culture, that's just the way it is. But what about when that's just the way it is with everybody in the church, too? See, like Balaam's advice to Balak. He's saying, you don't attack God's people front on like that. That's never going to work. They're God's people. That's not how you do that. You're not going to invade them. You don't just kind of head-on attack. That is not how you're going to attack God's people. You don't, you don't get them to renounce God. That's not going to work. Just get them to love sports more. Or, or, or don't get them to stop going to church. That's, that's a too far of a reach. Just get church to feel like a beauty pageant. A great place to be seen, to look my best, get a little worship of God and a little attention to myself. Or you don't have to stop them from caring about the injustices in our world. Just get them to hope in politics more than God. That's how you fix our world. Get the right person in office. Or you don't have to convince them not to follow Jesus. Just get them to believe that they deserve a life of ease. Pick up your cross and follow me. No, you've had a long week. Put your feet up. Or you don't have to convince them that homosexuality is okay. I mean, that's a textual reach. Just keep them watching Yellowstone. It's moderate nudity. 
Is everyone upset yet? <laughs> it's hard to look at our own compromises, isn't it? Like, it's so easy for us to be like, Hollywood, the corrupt people, our government. It's like, no, 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 no. Let's just look at ourselves. What are the things that we hate about Hollywood? How has that kind of snuck into our own hearts? That's what John's doing. He's like, hey, let's look at ourselves here. Because, yeah, the world is corrupt, but I'm not talking to the world. I'm talking to the church. These letters to the churches is like, you got this problem. And, And, guys, these churches are doing some things well. Like, we read that. Jesus is like, hey, good job. I'm proud of you here. But some things get called out. And guys, as a church, I love our church. I would go here if I didn't work here. I would. I love it. I think our church is awesome. But what needs to be called out? What needs to be called out in our church? And before you, you, you just want to brush this to the side, because maybe I poked your bear, and anytime it's like we bring up our idols, it's like, you're judgmental. Like, you're, like you're being too legalistic. Like, before you do that, can we just kind of feel the heaviness of Jesus' words to his church here? Because nobody cares about the health of the church more than Jesus. And this is, what, this is what he says to his church. Listen to some of these rebukes. He says to Ephesus, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, that's, there's some cultural translation here. It's like, what do you mean you're going to take my lampstand? Can we just agree on this? That doesn't sound fun. If she's like, if you don't repent, I'm coming. I'm taking your lampstand. I, I don't even know what my lampstand is, but I don't want you showing up with that kind of attitude, right? Like, he's just kind of like, I'm going to come get you, right? Where he says this. Therefore, this is to Pergamon. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. That doesn't sound fun. Or I gave her time, this is Thyatira, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your own works. So I'm going to deal with you. Or this. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and will throw, you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Wow. You better straighten up or I'm coming. And you're not going to know when I'm coming, but I'm coming, I'm coming against you. Or because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. These are some heavy words from Jesus. Heavy words. And like I told you, nobody cares about the health of the church more than Jesus does. But do you care about the health of the church? Do you care about your own holiness? I mean, if you ever had a dad or a coach or somebody you know cared about you, just chew you out. That's a little bit of this. And he does care. Jesus is passionate about the health of his church, the faithfulness of his people, passionate about your holiness. Are you? And before we start feeling like faithfulness is just this burden that I don't know if I can live up to, look at the last part of the last letter to these churches. This is 319. It says, those whom I what? 
Come on, work with me here. Those whom I what? Love. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. He's saying, I'm saying these things to you because I love you. And this isn't just a call of repentance, like, knock it off. Don't do that. I'm not just calling you away from sin. I'm calling you to myself. I'm better. Come, come eat with me. Open the door. Repent. Turn to me. Let's have fellowship. Let's have closeness. Let's have a relationship. It's so much better than the, what, what the world is offering. He's calling them to himself. Don't forget, a call of repentance may be hard because it stings. It kind of touches our idols. But repentance is possible because of the gospel. It's because despite our sin, Christ looks at us and I I still want a relationship with you. I'm calling you back to myself. So how are we doing? How are you doing? Where are you most tempted to compromise? Like Ephesus, are you full of truth but no love? Like you got great doctrine, but you're just a jerk. Or do you call yourself a Christian, but you tolerate false teaching and sexual immorality like Pergamum, Thyatira? Or you have a good reputation, like everybody at work would say you're a great person, you're a great Christian man or woman. But it's not real, like Sardis, just the facade. Or maybe like Laodicea, because we got a home to live in, and cars, plural, to drive, and plenty of food to eat, that we've just lost our hunger for God, and we don't know how desperate we're in need of him. Or maybe the temptation for your compromise is more closely connected to our culture, and you are more devoted to seventh grade volleyball than the church of Jesus Christ. Or you willingly entertain yourself with sin. Or you are so wrapped up in vanity and the promotion of yourself that you've lost the passion for the glory of God. And if that's the case, because that's the waters that we swim in, it's the air we breathe, it's the world that we live in. I mean, some people would say America is the hardest place to be a Christian because it's so easy just to be a complacent Christian. And you can just fit in with this, this pagan world and still be like, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. But the letter would be like, ah, but check yourself. So how are we supposed to stay faithful? Faithful to Jesus Christ. When, when we go to work, when we go to soccer practice, when we go to the park, when we go to wherever, it's like everything is just pulling us. Do this, watch this, wear this, act like this, value this, like eat this. Like everything is just kind of pulling us in an unfaithful direction. How are we to stay faithful? Look, look at the beginning of every letter says this to the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands to the words of the first and the last who died and came to life to the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword the words of the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze to the words of him who has the, uh, has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. To the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. To the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Every letter, every letter begins with this glorious description of Jesus Christ. It's not just, hey, don't do this. 
It's if you would get an accurate picture of King Jesus, why would you ever want to do that? Why would you ever rebel against him? It's foolish to think the world has something better to offer than the one who died and came to life, who holds the seven stars in his hand. Like, who who would think that? Like, guys, you have to have a big view of Christ. A big view of Christ is key for our faithfulness to Christ. And church, this has got to be the DNA of our church. Just a big love for Jesus. Like, this has got to be the secret sauce of Veritas Church. This is a group of people that just love Jesus. They worship Jesus. They're just passionate about Jesus. And let me, just, like, let me say this to you, because this is a, a, like a cautionary uh, counsel of the early days of a church. Sometimes, and there's been other places that say, hey, could you start a Veritas where we live? We want, we want a place like Veritas in our community. And you want to be like, well, what do you mean by that? Because if what you mean is like, I would love to have a church full of young people and great music. Uh, well, that's not really what it's about. I mean, yeah, but no. Because if, if that's what you mean, then that's, that's not what we're, we're doing. I mean, the DNA of Veritas is we're a group of people that are passionate about Jesus Christ. And I don't care if you're 70 with spoons and that's the only instrument you got. We're going to sing praises to Christ. Like, you get that type of heart. Oh, yeah, then we're going to have an awesome church. A church young people want to be a part of. Church people want to serve. But it can't be like, oh, we just want a church like that. Well, if you mean like that, and you're looking at, like, things that don't really matter, then it's going to fall apart. But if you can look under the hood and it's like, what makes this church special is these people are passionate about Jesus Christ and want to give their lives for the gospel, then yeah, let's put more churches like that in different communities. I don't care if you meet in a gym, a cafeteria. I don't care if there's just one guy on a guitar or a full band. You've got a trumpet. Like, it doesn't matter. Like Those are just secondary things behind like the heart of the DNA of a church. Because when Christ looks at his church and he writes a letter, he says nothing about music. He says nothing about facilities. He says nothing about programs. He says things about faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Passion for Jesus Christ. And it's got to be the DNA of our church. Or look how he ends every letter. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Does that not sound awesome? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Churches, plural, like all these churches and us too. To the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. To the one who conquers... And who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as with earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will be clothed thus with white garments and will never blot his name out of the book of life. 
will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. One who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And if I could just echo that, if you've got ears today, you need to hear the glorious future promised by Christ Jesus to those who are faithful to him. And that glorious future is far better than anything this world has to offer. Every letter ends with this amazing promise for people that are just caught in the now. Like, this is what we're struggling with now. This is what we're dealing with now. This is the pressure that we feel now. This is the toy I want to get now. This is the affirmation I want to get now. This is what I want to accomplish now. He's like, okay, can you just like look up and see what's promised and stop living for the now and live for what's to come? Because guys, we need an excitement about our future for our faithfulness. If you're not excited about the kingdom of God and the coming of Jesus Christ, you stand no chance to stand up to the pressures of this world. We've got to have an excitement about the future and what's pro- It's so much better. Did you see those descriptions? And he says, to the one who conquers, what he's saying is like, it's tough. There's pressure. I get it. But if you conquer, if you stay faithful, oh, it's so worth it. So worth it. But, put it this way. Listen to this. What you're living for has got to be greater than what you're living through. And that applies both for persecution and prosperity. Like what you're living for has got to be greater than what you're living through. Like for these believers that are going through hard persecution, you're going through it. But what you're living for, to the one, all those promises to the one who conquered, the kingdom of God, that's got to be greater. And that's going to get you through what you're living through. But the same for prosperity. What you're living for, Jesus Christ and his return and his kingdom, has got to be greater in your heart than the new iPhone, than fitting in at work, than whatever kind of that affirmation you're looking It's just got to be greater. It's got to be more treasured and more desired. So guys, I don't know what a letter addressed to us would say. Because a lot of times when churches go through these letters, it's like, well, dear Veritas. It's like, I don't know. I got hopes. <laughs> I, I got hopes to what would be said. But I don't, I don't know what Christ would say to us in a letter. But I do know how it would begin and end. It would begin and end the same way every letter began and end. It begins with this glorious picture of who Jesus Christ is. And it would end with this amazing promise to those who conquer. That's, that's what it would contain. Because that's what we need to hear. No matter what we're going through, what we need to hear is Jesus is worth it. And he's awesome and he's glorious. And those who are faithful, they, they get the reward. And it's worth being faithful for. You can put it like this if you're a note taker. Loving Jesus and longing for Jesus is the key to living for Jesus. Loving Jesus and longing for Jesus is the key to living for Jesus. And I think it's important because a lot of church-going people try really hard to live for Jesus. 
But when you press and prod, it's like, we don't love him. And I don't think you're really longing for him to return. So no wonder you're struggling to live for him. But, but if you would love him and get an accurate review of him and his glory, and you would just long for him to come back and to see him again in the kingdom that he offers, the living for him will play out. Loving Jesus and longing for Jesus is the key to living for Jesus. So church, as we try to stoke up our love for Jesus Christ, here's what you need to know. He first loved you. And he showed his love for you that while you're still sinners, Christ died for you as an expression of his love for you. His body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. And you may be facing all kinds of temptations to fit into this world. But while you are, Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, is knocking at the door and saying, come, come to me. Have closeness with me. Have fellowship with me. And I promise you, that is far better, far, far better than anything this world can offer. Amen? So as we take time to reflect on Christ's sacrifice, his love for you, when you go and take communion, there's stations throughout this room, be reminded of Christ's love for you in such a way that you fall in love with him. Let's pray. Father, I know there are convicting things that we need to hear as a church, as individuals, areas where we have compromised, where we've loved things more than you, and you have hard words to say, but those words are said out of love. I pray that you, by your spirit, would convict us where we need to be convicted, but not in a crushing way, where we just feel awful about ourselves in a hopeful way because we know that repentance is possible because of your sacrifice. And we can turn from our sin. And we don't just turn from our sin, we return from our sin to you. And you are there waiting for us with forgiveness and grace that is greater than our sin. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.